This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Anif Baharuddin and you're tuned in to the show that brings you closer to the people and places of our capital city. Josiri is a name that's pretty familiar to people in the culture and art scene. He wears many different hats, but is mainly known as the former festival director of Georgetown Festival. I wanted to get his thoughts on KL and whether what he does in Georgetown can be done here. So he joins me by Zoom to have a casual chat on all things culture and the city. <laughs> Hello, I'm Joe. I'm 64. I read Town and Country Planning in Manchester. I suppose that I stumbled upon culture and been stuck there all this while. I used to run the Georgetown Festival for nine years, from 2010 to 2018. Not a lot know that I am actually an industrialist. I run a factory producing textile chemicals. Uh-huh. Um, my late father passed away in 2001 and I had to take over. And I ran for about five, six years. I was actually going to the factory every day, juggling. But then when I started taking on the festival, I started looking for people that can help me take over but so far I, I found people but I can't seem to let go because the family still want me to run so I mean that's my rice bowl lah cari makan kan kalau tak itu lagi susah all these artists kebeluran nanti yeah but, but I guess to Zanessan it also gives you the platform to first okay cari makan is one thing so so at least you have you have a, you have a safety net of sorts to cari makan yes, but at the same time yes. then it allows you the the I guess the time and the space to pursue your passion as well kan that, one way or another yeah that, that that's true you know like it also helps you think from a different perspective you have a businessman on one side you know mm. so you you see even the arts from a different perspective you know it's interesting to 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 have that two hats Mm, yeah. Uh, talk to me about your experience running Georgetown Festival. Uh, you run it for close to close to 10 years, can? Uh, so, what was it like? And maybe yeah, for listeners who are not as familiar with Georgetown Festival, maybe you can give a bit of summary of what it is as well, actually. Yeah, it started in 2010. I ran it for 10, uh, n- uh, 9 years until 2018. I really loved it. It's like last season's Prada jacket, you know. People like me in it. I kind of fancied myself in it too. But it's last season. I loved doing it because I'm in love with Georgetown. I really like the city and the people here and and everything about the mana, the energy of the city, uh, you have it in Georgetown, you know. I kind of like second cities. KL is exciting too. I, I mean, I love KL. The short still, I managed to do uh, some work in KL. I found that there's a lot of underlining, under the belly type thing in Kuala Lumpur that's very sexy. Kuala Lumpur is very sexy. Sexy than Penang in that respect. Mm, okay, nice. Um, so you know when you're being asked to do something like a Georgetown Festival, which obviously mm. the, the name of the town is already there. How do you, I guess, package that? You know, how do you make it work? Uh, it, I I didn't make it work. It just worked because Georgetown lends itself to be a canvas to a city uh, for a festival because that's a beautiful canvas. People come to Georgetown anyway without the festival, the food, architecture, the history. So. Georgetown actually lends itself to a festival very easily. Although we don't have swanky galleries or performing halls like Kuala Lumpur or Singapore, but we have what is a very interesting backdrop to a festival, the streets itself, the people, the stories, the mana of the land, um, architecture backdrops, you know. So I think Kuala Lumpur, and it's a small, it's a village. It's a walkable city, whereas Kuala Lumpur, it takes you two hours to get from one place to another. <laughs> yeah, depending on the traffic as well sometimes, right? Yeah, and there's no, there's no, it's too big a center. It's not as if it doesn't have a center. It has many centers. So it's very hard. So unless they focus on like local festivals in that locality, that physical distance, then it will work. But to have a festival all over KL, it just feels disconnected, physically disconnected. 
Yeah, true. So, um, what, what I'm quite interested to, I guess, um, talk to you about today is, is you know, looking at the relationship between culture and the city, right? Because I think on the show, we've done a lot of conversations surrounding um, talking about urban design, urban planning and whatnot. And I, I think um, based on the kind of feedback that I've gotten from a lot of people that I've spoken to, it is important to, um, you know, unearth that human element. The human, the human aspect of, of things, especially in regards to how we live our lives in the city. But at the same time, um, I would like to, I guess, explore deeper the relationship um, that culture has with the city and whether, you know, the way a city is designed is pretty crucial in, in making sure that, you know, culture can exist in a grander way, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. actually, a good example is Singapore, you know. The newly designed spaces lends itself to like what I call shared space so that you, you, you can belong to any layer of the community and you still feel that you have um, access to it and it's free, it's beautiful and all that. Whereas Kuala Lumpur, um, because it's pockets and pockets and pockets of nice things, right? It, uh, it, need to, it needs better planning of this thing about shared spaces and access to spaces. Like uh, one good point is even overhead bridges. It's very hard, it doesn't work. People don't want to walk across overhead bridges. The only thing that I've seen work is a highlights uh, in in New York, you know, where people actually walk because it's a garden up there, you know. But anything less than that, people tend not to, to want to walk across things, you know. Uh, it's very difficult. I don't know what it is. Um, and the idea of having um, architectural spaces that lends itself to better aesthetics, better usage, as opposed to like, drawing nice things and I think it was like the Saloma Bridge. And I thought, okay, who is this bridge designed for? Who is going to use this? What is it? What's the rationale behind it? You know. So I think we need to think about why are we doing this? It's just we drawing nice circles, and we, it's like a national gallery. There's a, a, a national theater, fabulous building, but there was no there was no public transport that was easy access when it was built. You know. So where are you go? Where are your people going to come from? You know? mm. Yeah, we're going to touch a bit more on that. But um, just now you mentioned that KL has a lot of interesting pocket of spaces. Can you give some examples of these spaces that you find interesting in KL? Well, actually, actually the inner city. In the inner city, in Chinatown, in walking areas, it has a lot of old soul and it has got this underbelly feel of um, sexy, dark, mysterious, earthy. You know? it's, it's like Penang. It smells, it's it's broken down in spaces, distressed walls, but that's who we are, you know. I, I love it. And also because as Kuala Lumpur was the mixing pot of everybody coming to the city, that's where you get all the mixing cultures and uh, life lifestyles and um, different communities. Especially now, the migrant communities building their own stories, you know. That's, that's what cities have become now. They're no longer one monogamous one one layer, there's many layers to a city, you know. But what happens is, that's the sad part about major cities in downtown. Do you think KL has that problem though? Uh, somewhat, yes. Because like in Penang, because it's small, Malam, you go out, there's there's food everywhere, you know. There's still light, uh, even in parts of the inner city. And in KL, there's sections that are just dead. You know, because it was alive for offices during the working hours. And then for eight hours, it's dead as a city. So in the inner city, I think people should plan for livable inner cities so that people live in the inner city. Gardens should be in the inner cities. You know, um, housing should also be in, in inner cities. 
Yeah, and that's the interesting part because I think if you think about KL, um, KL was designed to be as such, right? That KL, um, or rather the greater KL. I know when I say KL, yeah. it's not, not just KL specifically, but the greater KL because the way our town, our city has been designed is that um, KL eventually grew to become the quote-unquote economic and industrial hub of sorts, I suppose. And then you have satellite towns, right? You know, you have your PJ, you yeah. have your Shah Alam, you have your Subang becoming places for people to live in. So therefore, people commute and travel to KL to work and then they come back and they live, you know, because they, they stay outside of KL or in the outskirts of KL, they leave KL to, to, to go back to their homes, right? So do you think that that's, you know, in hindsight, that's the lack of a foresight in terms of making KL a truly like livable city? Yeah, I think um, what makes a good city is when people are in love with it, you know? Now, you look at Sarawak and Sabah and Penang, the people take ownership of space. The island belongs to the people. They don't care which political party you belong to. So there's a sense of, I come from Penang. I come, there's a Penang pride thing. There's something about pride of space, which I think slightly lacks. But I must say, I've seen a lot of it coming up now, you know, that there's a resurgence of the young people. Uh, it's like Ipoh. Uh, Port Ipoh, I think, is doing marvellous, marvellous programming for people to take pride in what they do there, you know. Uh, Ipoh, Penang, Sabah, Sarawak, and now I see, I find a lot of sexy energy in Kuala Lumpur, actually. I think it just needs the government and all the other agencies to come on board and say, hey, look, let's all work together. Put, you see, in Malaysia, all the different agencies don't work together. They don't want to work together. The ministries don't work together. So I think that's where we lose resources. So much is spent, but everybody wants to spend doing their own thing as opposed to the better community good, you know? Mm. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned Salomon Bridge and then I think that's one example of I guess a recent project to make KL a lot more beautiful uh, but you know the thing about KL that I find quite interesting these days is that um, the word gentrification has always been used to to describe yeah. how we have um, sometimes uh, improved quote-unquote the you know places that are old into something that's new but but yeah. via that 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 method of um, I think some people would call it gentrification right what, what are your thoughts on gentrification uh, in, uh, in the first place I, I'm all for it you know I'm all for it I think gentrification saves buildings you know because a lot of times these buildings were left to disrepair <laughs> but I think what the government can take better control is to buy up some of these spaces and buildings and turn it into public spaces like like I know projects in Yokohama, in Taipei, where it is joint forces of government and private sector that takes they take in fabulous buildings and spaces, not left to the public sector. Like say, for instance, the the railway buildings and the Bangunan Sultan Abu Samad, however, stunning, stunning space. Instead of building new spaces, why don't we refurbish those spaces? Those are stunning spaces, you know, with souls, with architecturally aesthetically beautiful. So I feel as if Malaysian syndrome is, we've got money, let's burn it on a new white elephant. And then we don't maintain, then we go to the next building, you know. So I think sayang lah. I think because resources are hard, I think it's time for us to really look back and say how we share the resources and build these cultural platforms together lah. Mm. Yeah, but a counter-argument to, to gentrification projects is that sometimes uh, people question the, quote-unquote, the spiritual sincerity of, of it, you know, if you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> well, there isn't, There's no sincerity. It's a business. It's a dollar sign thing. Now, if people who don't want to sell their family-owned buildings don't sell, and then they make use of it, then it's fine. It wouldn't be gentrified. You'll be gentrifying your own self. You're building your own family name or whatever. But these are the very people that sold out to Singaporeans or whatever, so I think a controlled gentrification, I'm not saying yes to it, 
I'm not saying no to it. I think a control um, uh, look into Jerusalem. I mean, Penang has seen some gentrification going the wrong way. Large tracts of buildings are being bought by Singaporeans, turning it all into the same homogenous black and white um, uh, structures. You know, it feels as if God, this is like Disneyland. It's plastic land. You know. So that's the wrong side of gentrification, you know. But when a young family comes back to Penang and say, I want to run my father's business, I want to turn this thing into a nice cafe and refer, uh, we will relook into my family business, that's a nice part of gentrification. That was Josie Day, former festival director of Georgetown Festival, sharing his thoughts on turning KL into a cultural hub. We're going to make way for some messages. More after this, stay tuned. I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're listening to I Love KL on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I'm Hanif Baharuddin. Joining me on the show today via Zoom is Joe Sidek. He's mostly well-known for his work with Georgetown Festival for close to 10 years, among many others. And he's here to talk about KL's potential as a cultural hub. We're going to continue the conversation by talking about cultural identities and whether it needs to be made more cosmopolitan to make it more accessible in the city. He chimes in. I don't think so, but... Culture grows, um, cities grow, you have the, the, the nature of cities growing and uh, the morphing of the number of people, uh, communities and buildings and aesthetics and food and culture, it will start to grow in different directions. Certain cities get taken over by huge foreign communities. You know? So, I, But it's up to us, whether you're Malay or Chinese or Indian, to, to try to, to Put your, your jigsaw piece. I'm not saying being dominant. I say have a jigsaw piece and you're part of a bigger picture. I always tell people it's not it's not about you and me, but the power of us or we, right? If you take this example of uh, an armada, we're all different boats, different ships, different sampan, but we sail together. It doesn't matter whether you're big or small, but we, didn't, we do need to sail, sail together. What about making the people themselves, uh, especially people who are not necessarily, I guess, too interested in, in culture, quote-unquote, and its products, to embrace not only their identity, but also their culture, you know? Uh, how, how do we get people, you know, out there, especially in a city where sometimes people are just too focused on, yeah, on I think, working, I think right? we've lost yeah. it, actually, the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. We've, we've detracted, because my generation, we watched Mario, we see DK Barat, we see Boreal TV, yeah? Even most schools would have an unclothed band, but the last 30 years, it's gone to really, really bubble gum. We've lost the, the, the Indonesians. They will pay money to see their culture or they will sit through a traditional showcase. Our young kids would not sit through Gamelan or Makyong or whatever. Our kids don't. So I think we're not exposed enough and the kids are not shown enough for them to appreciate it. So I think we need to relook back again. How do we, how do we reinvent tradition for a contemporary audience? Because I think if not, we'll lose it. You know, you cannot force people to like culture. You know, so I think we cannot have shortcuts in culture. Uh, I think we really need to have our young people. I see a lot of people doing good or great programming for young. I mean, Janet Pillay for one, uh, doing programs for the young. I think that's the best thing that we can do: expose the young people to culture. Let them choose whether they like it or not, so that they don't grow up on just TikTok or or some cultural fodder that's superficial and ice cream on a cake, you know? That's the problem, right? Because I think first, yeah, we need to give them the exposure. But at the same time, there is also that argument that maybe it needs to be contemporarized as well so that it can be more relevant to the younger generation. Do you agree with that? 
I don't know. Um, yes, in some case, uh, when you come to the young people, the way it's presented is important because you cannot show Mark Yong to a young audience because they'll get bored. So you need to reinvent uh, how it's shown. I've seen international theatre directors have done one of the biggest interesting projects is called Manganiya Seduction. They have 40 over Sufi musicians singing and, and playing in red boxes. It is stunning. It's travelled the world. It's the best way to show Sufi music to a global audience, you know? So I, I'm thinking that that's the way to do it. You don't have to contemporize the actual element. You'll contemporize the packaging or how it's shown, right? And I think also, I, I was five or six years old. My father took me to Kelantan. And I think that stuck in my head. And I think that has been my, my cultural uh, stamp in my head. It comes back to me all the time, you know? So I think when young people are shown it, let them choose whether they like it or not. But if you don't show them, if you just don't even expose them to art or music or culture, how do you know whether they like it or not? How do you know that they don't like it's in 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 in, in its natural um, presentation? You know, I think what we've forgotten is how to excite the young mind. I remember bringing Strand Beast to Penang. Okay, Strand Beast are the huge mechanical uh, kinetic engineer things that move on beaches and all that. And I brought it in because I wanted a five-year-old boy to look at it and say, wow, how does this thing move? So the young mind is very excited about how things happen or why or why this and why that. So I think it's very important not to, I mean, I keep telling people, don't buy tickets for yourself, buy tickets for your children to see the shows. You are a lost cause. If you don't like culture, we're not gonna, we, can't, we can't change you. But your eight-year-old child, your nine-year-old child, your five-year-old child can still have hope, you know? So I think that's the direction that the country needs to go into. Educate, expose the young. Mm. Do you think that sometimes culture and art can be quite, quote-unquote, elitist? No, it's not. It's not. Come on. In the couple, no, you see, in the couple, we have art forms. In the kampongs, we have people producing shows and songs and all that. It's only elitist when you look at it from a Western perspective. This is why, okay, I, I'm asking Malaysians, right? Why is it that all of us look at the Western psyche as a benchmark. I did too when I was running the festival. So after two years of having uh, hibernation and rethinking where I could improve, I realized that why is it that we all over Asia, we look at the Western goalposts or Western psyche when we curate or we benchmark our cultural items. When culture comes from this part of the world, India, China, Iran, Iraq, uh, the Malay culture predates the Western culture. So yet we put a Western psyche because Western taught you how to appreciate culture. So that's why it became elitist. But for the kampong folks that used to see song and dance, it wasn't elitist. It was only the ones that were shown in the palaces that were elitist. But outside the palace, folk, folk songs, folklore, folk plays were all public. It was not elitist at all. It's a panggung right yet, you know? That's very important. I think... Um, DBKL and, and, and Think City is trying to do this Pangong Raya thing. I think it's marvelous. I think it's important to have this Pangong Raya thing giving exposure to people who don't normally have a chance to see it, you know, or access to it. So, but I do understand it is elitist when you look at, oh, I can't afford to see. That's why with Georgetown Festival, I made it a point that the cheapest tickets were like 25 ringgit. Now, 25 ringgit is like two cups of coffee in, in Starbucks. Any young students can afford that or most young students, or some, but it's still it's far more accessible than 200 ringgit tickets. Some of the world-class shows 
had tickets at 25 ringgit and still didn't sell. Why? Because we don't have an audience. Our audience don't understand. They don't want to see things. Huh? Uh, so I think it's very hard. I think we need as a nation to rebuild back our audience base, like Indonesia, where young people are watching cultural shows, art job getting millions of visitors. Really, people pay, people pay to see music and art and even traditional there in Indonesia. We've lost it a bit, you know, so I think we need to try to gain back. There's a lot of cultural advocates out there trying to fight for space too. And then every, everybody's doing a good job. So you're fighting for space, tradition or contemporary, you know. So in some way, there's also that middle ground of traditional being presented to the contemporary audience or contemporary being presented to the traditional audience. So it works both ways, is it? Yeah. Based on your experience running Georgetown Festival, do you think that it is something that can be replicated in KL? And how would you do that? If you, I, I would not suggest replicating it. And I think every festival should have their own stories. I'm, I'm working on a festival now in Vancouver. I can tell you it's so interesting because of the local stories, because of what they have. You don't want to just spend money and like Dubai, buy um, Celine Dion and buy Cirque du Soleil and have the best festival in the world because you spend a lot of money. It's not. It's not special. If you take 10 of the shows from a major festival and take it and put it in Taipei, does it make an interesting festival? Content-wise, yes, but there's no link to the city. KL needs to celebrate what KL is about. Yeah, whether it's buildings, stories, history. Yes, you can bring the international shows and all that as part of the jigsaw puzzle, but not as the main thing. Yeah? That was what I was attempting to do, but I'm not sure whether I failed because I was trying to tempt people to see these are the world-class acts that we need to benchmark ourselves, right? This is how we're going to get ourselves overseas, right? So I think, put, put the, the negative aside, we still have the best people in Malaysia. We still have the best buildings and spaces. And Kuala Lumpur is so exciting as a city because you have the numbers. You have the transient crowd. You have the numbers. What's important in the festival is that too. Because that's how you're going to sustain number of seats, number of tickets. Because the people come in and out, and some are transient. So you are you are you got every period different different crowds. KL has got all the right elements. The sponsors are there, the spaces are there. You just need a good cake maker or storyteller to string the story along and say, okay, this is Kuala Lumpur. Kuala Lumpur has it. I mean, you know. But what he said is not since uh, Petronas F1 have we got a global brand in Kuala Lumpur. There isn't a global brand other than the F1. F1 was the one and only that came. The Islamic Museum is something very interesting and of global international standards. Um, sorry, Angela, I think that we need we need to look at it. I mean, I think KL has got it and there's a lot of good people out there. And I, I see things happening now with Think City and the Bandaraya. Uh, I think it's moving in the right direction, but I think we need to move faster. Lah. We need to be moved faster because clock is ticking. Every city in the world, it's like, I keep telling Sabah and Sarawak, okay? state claims to being gateway to Borneo. You blink an eye and Nusantara is going to be the biggest thing in Borneo. It's like Kuala Lumpur. We had it. We somehow like, like lost the race with, with uh, Jakarta and with other major cities. You know? And with Singapore, for instance, how Singapore is focused on the arts and how they pumped money in the whole ecosystem of the arts and the structure and strategy. And I... I the ministers change portfolios to learn another ministry, not, not because they're not good or whatever. You know? And I think they, they, they really have hardworking ministers there too that really work the ground level. And I'm very interested in how they've 
strategize the last 10 years and how they've changed. Every complaint that Singapore is so rigid and so rigid. I said, it's not. I, I see a major change. Even the landscaping has gotten wild. You know, and they've allowed, they've allowed even censorship have gotten slightly softer, you know, whereas we seem to be regressing, you know. Mm. I'm going back to KL. Uh, if you were to list down KL's strength that, that can make this work, can create a vibrant cultural hub, you know, what would that be? It has some of the best restaurants. It has some of the best creative talents. It has a pool of talents, young and old. It has all the major fund, funders, sponsors, companies, corporations. The biggest asset would be numbers. You are a center of like 6 million people. And then the transient people that come to KL as they fly to Penang or fly to Kuching, that two, three days stay could make KL the most powerful number game for Malaysia. You can't run a festival when you don't have the numbers. Unless people want to fly in like Burning Man, they all fly, but you don't have that number. It's 30, 40, 50,000 maximum. You want more than that, you know? And you want to actually balance the fact that the festivals are not for international travelers. The festivals should be also for your own people. It's, it's like um, having it layered, your own people to learn, to appreciate, because we need that. We really need that. Because if you keep doing festivals, I did it. I did festivals because my job was to grand Penang. My job was to do an international festival. My job wasn't to educate the locals and all that. But I tried. I, I'm not saying, maybe I failed. But I think it's important to be able to educate, expose the, the local audience at the same time as you're building the brand. You mentioned educating the, the, the people. Um, you know, if there are listeners out there listening to this, how, how do they themselves get themselves immersed in culture? Especially, you know, if they're not that young. I know, I guess parents, you know, adults have responsibilities to to, to get their kids to be interested as well. But for, for those out there who themselves are now have been picked by, you know, by our conversation and want to, I guess, start looking for cultural content in KL, how can they go about it? You know, when I was asked to do whether I wanted to do a festival in, in Bengkulen, I said, give me 10 minutes. I went online, went, I just Googled it and it came all down. So Skyang Senang, you just need to Google art dance, theater, film. And actually, even if I put a big billboard in front of your house, you wouldn't notice it. So it, is, it comes from the one thing, the niat, the niat na tengok, the niat or the will to want to learn or see. If not, you won't go. You can't force it. That's why I think it's good if you can expose it to really young children. So they, they their staple diet is already in their staple diet. So they don't need to be forced anymore. So you know where to look. So I think that that happened when we were young. We had drawing classes. We had this, but now we became like science and maths, and and no no more of the creative left brain or right brain thing, you know. And I think we need a lot more of that in the curriculum of the schools. Any last thoughts on 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 KL as a cultural hub? I think you all should go for it. I think it's wonderful that there's many agencies in KL uh, that are working on it now, I think KL is right for an international festival. I've always said that for the longest time because you have everything there. You have all the right people. You have all the right spaces. You just need to tell the right story. What is Kuala Lumpur? You know that Malaysia has the, the only gateway to the world because for 2,000 years, we were known as a golden archipelago. We were expecting exporting metal to parts of the West. Right? We were exporting elephants to India. So we became the, the, the gateway to East and West. And we were cosmopolitan from the longest time. So I don't see why Malaysians cannot take this thing and say, hey, 
we are national number one. We're the center of Asia. You've been tuning into I Love KL and it was Josie Day, Executive Director of Josie Day Productions. He's also mostly known for his work with the Georgetown Festival for close to 10 years. That's all we have for this episode of I Love KL. If you miss any part of the show, you can check out the podcast at pfm.my slash ilovekl, our app which you can find via Google Play and the App Store. And you can also find this show and many others on Spotify. Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio. My name is Anif Baharudin and you have been tuning in to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. Join us again next week only on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.